Luke chapter 15 this morning where we'll be looking at the parable of the prodigal son and other parables that attend it. While you're turning there, let me say a few words of introduction. God's people are a forgiven people, a redeemed people, a repentant people who have received mercy from our Heavenly Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we ought to be a joyful people who find joy in the redemption of the lost, the salvation of sinners, for we are called to share in that which brings the greatest joy in heaven so that God's will might indeed be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we think of justice in terms of just deserts, and we judge ourselves and others against standards of our own making. We use these arbitrary standards to measure the degree to which we have wandered in comparison to the degree to which others have wandered. And we draw wrong conclusions about God's opinion of us and of others. It may well be true that some of us have wandered less than others, but it does not matter, for God does not evaluate us in that way, and we should not evaluate one another in that way. Rather, God invites every one of us to share in His joy as a pure act of divine grace. And His joy is greatest when sinners repent and return to Him as children. Our hearts should rejoice all the same. That's the message of the text that's before us this morning in Luke chapter 15. So if you found your place then in Luke 15, would you follow along with me as I read from verse 1 to the end of the chapter? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you? Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost." Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father in heaven, as we hear your word, implant it deep within our hearts, Lord. May we not be like this elder brother. May we not be like these scribes and Pharisees. May we not be a miserable, grumbling people who grumble at the redemption of sinners, but may we be like the angels in heaven who rejoice with joy unspeakable when even one sinner repents and believes the gospel. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding and that you would impart your words to our hearts and to our minds as we hear them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When we look at this text, we should note the very beginning of the text, the narrative in which the text is found, because that's going to help us to understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish in this parable. And right from the start, we see the earthly misery of the Pharisees. The earthly misery of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, Jesus has had dinners with the scribes and the Pharisees before, and usually they did not go well. All the way back in Luke chapter 7, we saw that Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to dine with him, and Jesus confronted Simon because of his, his, his hypocrisy and his self-righteousness and his judgmentalism toward a woman who was washing Jesus' feet. Then again in Luke chapter 11, at the end of that chapter, we saw another passage where Jesus was invited to dine with scribes and Pharisees, and in the course of that dinner, he pronounced woes upon both groups, saying, woe are you, again, for their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy. And even last week in Luke chapter 14, as we considered the text that was before us in Luke chapter 14, we saw once again Jesus was invited to dine with some scribes and Pharisees. And what did he do but confront them once again for their self-righteousness, their pride, and their hypocrisy. 
We've seen that theme unfold in Luke's Gospel. But we've also seen that Jesus has eaten with other individuals. All the way back in Luke chapter 5, we recall that Levi, one of Jesus' disciples, began as a tax collector. And Jesus called him and said, Come and follow me. And Levi left all, left the tax booth, and went and followed Jesus. And that night, that very evening, he threw a feast for him. And many sinners, many tax collectors came to that feast to dine with Jesus. And there the scribes and the Pharisees said words that are now familiar to us from the text we've just read. As they observed that Jesus dined with groups, with people that they labeled as sinners and tax collectors. And there in Luke chapter 5, Jesus responded to them with these words in verse 31 and following, saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And throughout Luke's gospel then, he's developing a picture of Jesus as the great physician who has come to call sinners to repentance so that they might be healed from their sin. And he's also unfolding a picture before us where Jesus is not just a great physician, but he is one sent from heaven who has come to seek and to save the lost. The scribes and Pharisees have not perceived this. They have not understood this. They have not perceived also that they themselves are lost in their self-righteousness and their pride and their hypocrisy. And so they are grumbling because Jesus receives sinners and eats with them as the tax collectors draw near to hear him. Now this grumbling, it reminds us of Israel. It reminds us of the people of Israel in the wilderness who grumbled time and time again against the Lord. Though the Lord did many mighty works before them, though He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, He fed them miraculously with manna in the wilderness and with quail, and yet they grumbled against Him time and time again so that they became associated with this pattern of complaint, of grumbling. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will tell the church, don't be like them. Don't grumble. Don't be grumblers and complainers. That's what the scribes and Pharisees are like right now. They're like their forefathers who grumbled against the Lord and against all the good things that He had provided them. And here God is providing salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They grumble. So what does Jesus do? He responds with parables with three parables. The first two are preparatory. They establish important points that are going to help us to understand the featured parable, which is the parable of the lost sons, what we often know as the parable of the prodigal son, but truly a misnomer, really a parable about two sons and their father. The parable of the lost sons. But before we get there, Jesus prepares the way with two other parables that establish an important point. And one thing you're going to notice as we look at these parables is how they're almost interchangeable. It's almost as if you have a framework where you could fill in the blank, first with a man who goes out in search of sheep, and then with a woman who goes out in search of silver coins, and you hear the same words and the same refrains as these two parables work together to make the same point and to really impress upon us the truth that we see in the parables. So Jesus asked them, which of you, which man of you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of those sheep, which man of you will not leave the 99 in the open country and go out in search of that lost sheep? 
Now, at first, this might seem to us from our vantage point as an irresponsible thing. You might say, I have 100 sheep, I have lost one, but I have 99. I will cut my losses. I will write it off on my tax return. I will move on with my life. But that's not the way the shepherd thinks about his sheep. And it's not so reckless. A shepherd in those days would have traveled with other shepherds, and he could have left that flock in the open country under the care of his companions while he went searching. But he does go and make this search. He is not content that any of his sheep should be lost. And so he goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. He is overjoyed to have found his lost sheep. And then he's not done. He comes home and he calls all of his friends together. And look at what he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He wouldn't come home and say, Rejoice with me, 99 didn't go astray. He says, Rejoice with me, I found the one that was lost. And what's the point? Verse 7, Just so, Jesus tells us, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven rejoices when a sinner repents of his sin and turns to Jesus Christ and embraces him in faith. Heaven is overjoyed. There is a great celebration in heaven over this. So there ought to be on earth as well. So Jesus makes that point again. What woman having ten silver coins, she loses one coin. Now this is a greater loss. One tenth of all that she owns. And she's a rather poor woman about ten days wages there. She has ten coins and she loses one. And she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house, maybe hoping to hear the sound of that coin as it patters around and clinks around. And she can find it then. She seeks diligently until she finds it. And then she does something extraordinary. Again, we, wouldn't, we probably would say, I wouldn't rejoice because I found a lost item on my floor. But in this case, the woman has found it. And what does she do? Note the words that are repeated, that what we hear from that first parable, again in the second parable. She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just as the shepherd calls together his friends and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. She says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. With her friends, she rejoices. And so again, Jesus makes that point once more, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Indeed, there is joy before the angel of God, angels of God, but there is misery in the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes over these repentant sinners who are coming to Jesus. You see how disordered their way of thinking is. You see how disordered their thoughts are. And yet... We could imagine them objecting in this way. We could imagine them saying, does not God's word say, I desire obedience more than sacrifice? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, indeed, it says that, as well as in many other places. In the context there, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is the king. And God had commanded Saul and the people of Israel, to utterly destroy the Amalekites, the enemies of the people of Israel. But Saul had not gone through with what the Lord had commanded him. And the people had preserved for themselves the cattle and some of the spoil 
that they were supposed to devote to destruction. And so, so Samuel, the prophet, came and confronted Saul, and Saul made an excuse. Saul tried to make excuses, and one of his excuses that he made was to say, well, the people have really saved these, 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 this cattle for sacrifices to the Lord. Surely that should cover it. Surely we can get off here because we're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And there in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22 through 23, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And he says to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So 1 Samuel 15 does indeed teach us that obedience is greater than sacrifice. And one says, well, well does that not mean that what God really longs for and wants is obedience more than repentance even? that he would delight more in the 99 obedient individuals than the one repentant sinner. But we need to look at Psalm 51 and see that we ought not to equate sacrifice in this case with repentance. In Psalm 51, you know the psalm well, many of you, that this is a psalm that David wrote after he had sinned a great sin. He had stolen the wife of Uriah, and to hide his sin, he had arranged for Uriah to die in battle. And so he became an adulterer and a murderer. And when he was confronted by the prophet, he confessed his sin. He prayed to the Lord for forgiveness. And in this psalm, Psalm 51, is that great prayer of forgiveness, that great prayer of contrition, whereby David teaches us how we might confess our sins to the Lord. In fact, we'll return to it again in the course of our time this morning. But there in Psalm 51, in verse 16, and 17, David writes these words, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not be despised. So just as Saul made the mistake of thinking that sacrifice was greater than uh, obedience, here, David, he doesn't make the mistake, but David shows us that, that sacrifice is not greater than repentance, than contrition. The two things are not equal. David will go on to say that in repentance, that when we have uh, established our hearts in a right frame before the Lord, then he will delight in our sacrifices. The picture that is seen there in this, those two passages is that sacrifice in those contexts is associated with empty Ritual worship, just the things that you do, or to put it another way, the very things that the Pharisees and the scribes made it their business to do every day. Empty rituals, devoid of meaning, not flowing from a changed heart. And it's not of value to the Lord. He doesn't care about it. Yes, he wants his people to obey his word. But part of obedience is hearing his call to repent and to believe the gospel. Jesus came calling sinners to repent of their sin and to believe in Him and to enter into the kingdom through faith in Him. That's the obedience He called people to demonstrate in their lives. The sinners and the tax collectors 
did that very thing. The scribes and the Pharisees refused because they saw in their life no need for repentance because they mistook their empty rituals. They misunderstood their empty rituals as though they were the things that God chiefly desired. These first two parables prepare them to see that's not the case, that there is more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner. Indeed, more joy over one repentant sinner than there is even over 99 who stand in no need of repentance. That brings us then to the featured parable, the parable of the lost son. And indeed, as I said, there are two sons here that are featured, two sons whom we must consider. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of a property that is coming to me. Now this is shocking. This is a shocking thing for this young man to say to his father. It's like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want what you have, but not a relationship with you. It's a horrible thing for him to say. He treats his father in a shocking way, insulting him. And yet what's more shocking is that the father does it. He divides the inheritance between the two sons and gives the younger one the share that is due him. And it's not many days later that the young son gathers all he has and goes into a journey into a far country. He's not content to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want the money that you can give me. I don't even want to be associated with you. I don't even want to be near you. I don't even want to be part of your people, is what he's saying with his actions. And instead, what he would rather have is a life of pleasure, a life of sin, a life of hedonism. We're not surprised that very quickly it goes poorly for him. He goes into this far country and he begins to squander all of his property in reckless living. That word reckless living, it's like saying in destructive living or it's the opposite of salvation. It's like unsaving is the word there. What he's doing is leading to his destruction, not to his salvation, not to his ultimate joy. He squanders, he sell, he, 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 he takes all of that he has, all of his father's wealth, which he has now taken, and he loses it very quickly, living a reckless kind of life. And when he had spent everything, things go from bad to worse. For a severe famine arises in that country, and he begins to be in need. So what does he have to do now? He has to go and hire himself out. He has to indenture himself as a servant to another man. And that man is not gracious like his father was. That man sends him in the field to care for pigs, not sheep here, but pigs, which to the Israelite would have been a disgusting thing, an unclean animal, which they were never to touch, certainly never to eat. But this man has to go into the fields and feed this man's pigs, a citizen of that country. And his employer doesn't even give him anything to eat. And so that as he feeds these meager pods, little uh, pods of beans or something like that, the kind of thing that poor people would eat because you could find it in a time when it wasn't uh, famine. He has to feed those things to pigs, but they're not given to him. He's in a dire situation. 
He realizes it as he longs to eat that which he is feeding to the pigs. And in that situation, then he comes to his senses. Then it's like he wakes up from a dream. Then it's like he steps out of a daze and suddenly sees things clearly. He came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? My father's servants are better fed than I am. But I perish here with hunger. That word perish there. It's like saying, I am lost. Imagine someone who is on a ship at sea. And the storm is raging and the waves are crashing over that ship. And he says, all is lost. We are perishing. We are being destroyed. But that word, the reason I say it's like saying all is lost, because I want you to see the connection. What have we seen in the first two parables? Lost and found. Lost things that are found. Here, as this man comes to his senses, he realizes he is lost. He is perishing. He is being destroyed. In other words, I'm telling you, it's the same word in a slightly different context that heightens the sense of what it means to be lost. He recognizes that he's gone. He's gone to his destruction. And so he resolves to do the only thing he can think to do to avoid that destruction. He resolves in his heart and in his mind saying, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and and before you. Now here we're reminded again of Psalm 51. In Psalm 51 we reflect on the context and we think how David truly sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against his army. He sinned against a great many people. And yet in the course of that psalm he can say, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, speaking to the Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. But David is not denying that he has wronged Uriah or Bathsheba or any other. He knows he has wronged them. But in terms of what sin is, what constitutes sin, the thing that makes sin sin at the end of the day is that it is an offense against a holy God. It is an offense against our God who made us, to whom we owe everything. It's not just a mistake that we made or a simple indiscretion. It's an offense against God and against His law. It's an insult to Him. And this man rightly understands that his sin is not just a sin against his father. His sin ultimately, and first and foremost, is a sin against heaven. It's a way of saying, I've sinned against God. So he resolves to go to his father and say that, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He acknowledges that he is unworthy, that he doesn't deserve the privilege of being called a son. He has squandered his inheritance and no longer should be considered an heir to his father. And so he will seek to be a servant. He will seek to indenture himself to his father as a servant. He says, make me as one of your hired servants. So he rises 
comes to his father. But while he's still again a long way off, notice he went a long way away, and now he's a long way off. And it's as if the father every day is rising and looking to the horizon to see, perhaps today my son will come. Just dwell on the beautiful picture here. The father sees his son coming across the horizon. He doesn't wait for him. He doesn't look at him with an eye raised, eyebrow raised and say, well, what do you have to say for yourself or did you learn your lesson? He does another thing that would have shamed him in the eyes of his culture, but he doesn't care. He rises and he runs to his son because he felt compassion. He felt deeply within himself great love and compassion for this lost son. And he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. That language that Jesus uses in that parable would have been familiar to the original hearers. It reminds us of just one passage in all of Scripture where the, the, the words are the same, what echoes that passage in, in the book of Genesis when Jacob is returning and he's worried about how Esau will receive him and he's afraid that his brother Esau will seek to kill him and he doesn't know what to expect but when he does come, what does his brother Esau do? He runs to him he embraces him. He throws his arms around his neck and he's kissing him. A totally unexpected picture of love from a brother to a brother. And here we, we see this echoed here because the son did not expect this. But the father ran to the son with great compassion and threw his arms around him and was kissing him. The son did what he resolved to do. He said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice that the father cuts him off. The father does not let him finish and say, Put me in the fields as a servant. No, the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. He honors his son. He says, Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf, a calf uh, an animal that would have been reserved only for a festival, only for a great celebration. Bring that fattened calf. Kill it. What are we going to do? We're going to celebrate. We're going to rejoice. Not just me, but every one of us. Why? Here's why. In verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But the older brother comes, the older son comes, and he doesn't like it. He was in the field where he should be, working for his father as he should be, laboring for the good of his father as he should be. And he draws near to the house and he hears music and he hears dancing and he calls one of the servants and he says, what is this? What is this that's going on? And the servant says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older brother's angry. He's wrathful. He refuses then to join the celebration. I won't go in. Why? Because he does not think his brother deserves this. He thinks that he deserves it. And so as his father comes out and entreats him and invites him in, now we're reminded of previous parables where Jesus spoke about a master of a house who sends out 
invitations, calling people to come to the feast, and they've got better things to do. Now it's escalated. It's not just that they have better things to do. They will not associate themselves. This brother representing the scribes and Pharisees, they will not associate themselves with those other people who are coming into the feast, who are being healed by Jesus, who are, were lost and are being found by Him, who are dead, are being, receiving life from Him. They don't want any of that. And so look at then how the son treats his father as his father entreats him to come in. Look these many years, I have served you. And now his self-righteous hypocrisy is unmasked. He does not think of himself as a son, but as a servant. In the end, we're going to see that he's really no different than his younger brother was in his prodigal days. He doesn't think about himself, himself in terms of a relationship with his father. These many years, I have served you. I have never disobeyed your commands. His father is a, a master. His father is a legislator. But he doesn't think of his father as a father. He doesn't even address him as father here, like the prodigal son when he returned. And he says, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with who? With my friends. And we hear the echo again of those first two parables of the shepherd and the woman who said to their friends, come and celebrate. I have found the lost thing. Celebrate with me. This man says, you never gave me a young goat. That is, you've killed the fattened calf for him, but this little meager thing, you've never even given me so much as a young goat that I might go away and celebrate with my friends my own righteousness. That's what he's saying. What does this man say to him? Just as he was so gracious and merciful to the younger son, now he's gracious and merciful to this older son who now insults him. This older son says, look at the way he refers to his brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. How insulting he is, but the father says, son, in a, in a very affectionate way, son, you're always with me. What more could you ask for, in other words? You're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting. It was necessary, we could translate that. It was necessary. It had to be, is what he's saying, that we celebrate and be glad. Why? And he repeats again the refrain that he used to justify the celebration initially. Your brother... Not this my son, but he puts again to his son, his older son. It's not this your son, it's your brother. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Pharisees and scribes thought of tax collectors and sinners as their brothers and sisters. You wouldn't know it. They might say, these your children, but not my brothers and sisters. So they found no space in their heart to rejoice at the repentance that was unfolding before their eyes as sinners came to Christ and turned from their sins and bore fruit in keeping with repentance as we heard John proclaim so many weeks ago. No, they grumbled against them. They are like the older brother and Jesus is confronting them with this parable. This parable is a confrontation to them even as it calls us as prodigals to come home to our Lord. We need to see that. 
But this is a challenge to any who would be self-righteous. I don't want to reduce it just to that. In fact, we can apply this text in three ways. We can draw three messages, a message for everybody here from this text. We can find a message for would-be prodigals in this text. For it shows us and calls us to understand the utter foolishness of hedonism. What's hedonism? I heard that word a lot when I was a kid and had no idea what it, what it meant. So I wouldn't expect children, young people here to know what it means. Well, let me explain it to you. Hedonism is a life of wanton sin that makes sinful pleasure its sole aim and desire. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what hedonism is. It's not just sin. It's not just making a mistake. It's not just getting something wrong. It's saying that all I live for is my pleasure here and now. I don't care how it comes. I don't care if, it, if someone thinks it's a shameful thing. I don't care if it causes me to feel guilty. I just want to feel good. And that's what this prodigal son went and did. And we need to see hedonism for what it is. We live in an age with a great deal of hedonism. It's praised on social media. It's depicted in movies and television. Young people who seem to have everything, especially young men who seem to have wealth and privilege and possessions and all kinds of things, will flaunt their hedonism in public through the internet and elsewhere, saying that the good life is this life that I am living, and we need to wake up like the prodigal son. We need to see it for what it is. It is alluring, but it is destructive. It's as we read in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, when we hear the words of a father speaking to his son, saying, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head, and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. He'll go on to say, they're laying a net, a trap for themselves. They go to their own destruction. Don't give in. Don't go that way. And there are many similar texts in the book of Proverbs. Hedonism may be alluring, especially in our youth, but it is destructive. It's like a student going to college and never studying and never pursuing his degree, but always simply partying and seeking to experience the pleasures that the freedom that he has now entails. He's not there to study or to learn, but to enjoy his life. And what does he do? He fails his exams. He gets kicked out of college. And I knew many such people when I was in the Navy who that was their story. And then they were in the Navy because of it. They had time to return and to amend their ways, and many of them went back to college and did better the second time around. But you see that picture. It looks great on the front end, but when you go through it, you realize you've made a mess of it all. You've destroyed it all. And worse than that, we need to see it for what it is before God. It's a cruel and hateful rejection of our loving Heavenly Father. It's like a squandered inheritance that we've lost in reckless living. And so especially young people, but anyone who thinks about this and says, I would like to pursue that life. 
I say to you, be wise. You don't have to go down that road. You don't have to go in that prodigal way. You don't have to live that life. It's not good. It's not pleasant. It will lead to destruction. There's a message for would-be prodigals. We all sin, but there is a kind of life that is the complete and total embrace of sin. Don't do that to yourself. There's a message here also for present prodigals. Know that Christ came to seek you out and to save you. And if you repent of your sin and turn to Him in faith, you will receive mercy. It's not like the son here returning to his father who thinks maybe my father will at least let me be a slave. It's an assured thing. It's a certain truth. We too, if we are present prodigals, we need to wake up from our haze. We need clarity. We are lost. We are perishing. Friends, if you don't know Christ and you are here, you need to know this first of all. God made you. And so you owe Him everything. And He has perfect and complete right to do with you whatever He wills. And yet He loves you with an unshakable, everlasting love. He loves you so deeply, so dearly, that He sent His only begotten Son to save you. But your sin is an offense like the sins of these two sons. It's in a deep and abiding affront against the Holy God. And you need to know that too. For He didn't just send His Son to come and collect you and say, come with me. He sent His only begotten Son to save you by dying for you. God the Son, the eternal Son of God, took on a human form and went to a cross and suffered shame for you to redeem you, to pay a debt that you could not pay. God loved you that much to send Him to do that. And your sin is serious enough that that was what was necessary to save you. But thanks be to God that He did not leave us in our sin, but sent His Son. And so what do you need to hear from this message if you are a present prodigal? Don't minimize your sin. In this case, be like that prodigal son. He didn't say as he journeyed home, well, maybe I'm being a bit too harsh for myself. Everyone makes mistakes and it was no big deal. My father's already rich and no one is perfect and I'll do better next time so that by the time he came to his father and said what he had set out to say, he'd watered it down, put it in a passive form. No, that's not what he did. What he resolved to say, he said, he followed through. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy. That is repentance. That is the attitude that describes a truly repentant heart. One where we recognize who we are before God and our unworthiness and that we truly are sinners by nature and by choice. We need to be like that prodigal son and we also need to recognize that we don't solve this problem by rebuilding our lives in our own strength. Otherwise, it would be an impoverished rebuild like a son becoming a slave, as this son set out to do. We repent before our Heavenly Father, and He restores us to what we have lost. He restores us graciously to a relationship as children of God. If you are here today, and you don't know God in that way, you don't have that relationship, repent right now. Resolve in your heart right now to turn from your sin and turn to Christ and receive the mercy that is offered you in Him.
And if you have questions about that, then please come and see me afterward. I would love to talk more with you about this glorious and gracious gospel, what it means to truly repent. And know this for sure, that the Father's love in this parable is a picture of God's love for you. This father ran to his son. He endured cultural shame for his son. He did something so unexpected, so extraordinary, because it is his great delight, his great joy, to restore repentant sinners to salvation, that they might be children. That's what Jesus Christ came to do, to take people who are estranged from their maker and redeem us as sons, as children of God forevermore. That is the message to present prodigals. Turn and believe. There's finally a message for former prodigals. Christ came to save us from our self-righteousness. Christ came to save us from our self-righteousness. You see, what happens sometimes in the Christian life as we go on and we grow in godliness, or if we were raised in a Christian home and we don't look back in our history and see something, any, anything quite like this prodigal son, is that we can become hardened in our self-righteousness in our, in our attitudes. One way that I want to look at today and just think about is how we do this is we, in our own context, in our own culture, is by having this concept of a Christian probationary period. What does that mean? A Christian probationary period. We see someone who repents of their sin, but we're, we're not quite sure. Or we raise an eyebrow, you know, I know what that person came from, or I know that person's pattern of life, or I see the way that, that person dresses, or the, what the person looks like, and I say, yeah, you know, I'm going to withhold judgment. I'm, let's see. Let's let this thing play out. I'm not so sure. And so we raise an eyebrow, and we have our suspicions, and that's Phariseeism. There's legalism to the core. No different than the elder brother here. And it's an affront to God who did not receive us like that, saying, I'll wait and see. We ought to receive others upon a credible profession of repentance and faith. Nothing less, nothing more. This does not negate the need for us to disciple others, to help others to grow in godliness, to help them to understand God's Word and seek to grow in Christ-likeness. But discipling them with patience and mercy is not the same as questioning them with suspicions or looking at them and saying, well, maybe they can get into heaven, but I don't want them here among us. And yet that attitude is so common in churches. I think some of you have even experienced that kind of attitude yourselves. And if we look at this parable and see that that's the same as this elder brother, we start to see how ugly it is. This elder brother also needed to wake up from his haze. He needed to see things for what they were. His self-righteousness needed to be unmasked as an insult to his father's love. As he needed to see that he was no different than his younger brother, seeing himself not as a son, but as a servant, seeking rewards apart from a relationship with his father. He wanted to celebrate with his friends, not to join in the joy of his father at the restoration of his brother. And so we see that his self-righteousness is nothing more than effrontery against his brother, against his father, and against God. Self-righteousness like this is apparent when we reduce heavenly joy that is promised to us to mere earthly joy of a greater degree. 
when our hope in this life is to be rewarded in this life for obedience, not with a relationship of love, but with more things and more pleasures. It's apparent also when we see the salvation of others as something that would threaten and deprive us of the joy that we can have in our own salvation rather than something that should bring us great joy. It's seen when we understand the gospel merely as a fact that we know, but not something that really matters in our life. Not the way in which we were saved, but just some test that we need to pass and questions we need to answer. Let other religions present paradise in terms of mere passing earthly joys that are nothing more than rewards for good behavior, like stickers on a child's chore chart and knickknacks in a kindergarten prize bin. It is not the true picture of the eternal joy offered us in Christ, and we can be thankful for that. For what is offered us is nothing less than a relationship with the living God as children of our Heavenly Father. He is great enough that no one is deprived because the relationship is granted to another, and no one's joy will be diminished because he rejoices in the salvation of another. In fact, our joy should increase because we have gained another brother, another sister. Our family has grown. More than this, we have all been prodigals at one point or another, and we will be again in our own unique ways. And all heaven has rejoiced over each of us at one point as well and will rejoice again. Let us join, therefore, in their joy and rejoice over every sinner who repents with all that is in us, as though we have regained a beloved sibling from the dead, for that is what it is. Nothing less than the resurrection of one who was dead through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a gracious God you are, that you would seek us when we were not seeking you and we were not very lovely, that you would save us, not for service, but for sonship. That you would set us apart and clothe us in holiness, not by a merits of our own, but by the grace that we've received through Jesus Christ. What a gracious privilege this is, O Lord. We thank you and we praise you. We pray that we would not become a people who are hardened to this reality and hardened to this truth, and so become self-righteous and scornful of others rejoicing in our own salvation, but grumbling at the salvation of others. May we never be that kind of people, but may we, O Lord, be a people who rejoices as heaven rejoices, as you rejoice when even one sinner repents and believes the gospel. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. We pray that you would give us the opportunity to rejoice in this way more and more in the days that are before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.